So today what we want to talk about is pretty much everything else. <laughs> everything that we haven't talked about, uh, about Islam that's of interest, we want to get that covered. There are a lot of apologetic issues that we'll be talking about today. Um, there will be a lot of current events type issues. Uh, by the end of today, uh, I've reserved a block of time towards the end where anything that you have to ask is fair game. Um, so make sure to be writing down your questions. Uh, the, the more relevant ones you can ask immediately, the ones that just kind of pop in your head sporadically, hold those till the end, um, and at that time we'll start answering them. Probably the single most, uh, foremost issue in the minds of many believers is the issue of violence in Islam. How do we reconcile the fact that Muslims call their faith the religion of peace with the violence that we see inherent in a lot of the actions of Muslims around the world. Uh, the people who flew planes into the Twin Towers in 2001, it wasn't incidental that they were Muslim. They did that in the name of Islam. That makes a big difference. Um, the people who uh, even today are bombing in city squares, uh, taking innocent lives, they're shouting the words Allahu Akbar before doing that, and that is a Muslim rallying call, meaning Allah is great. How do we reconcile this? Uh, how do people have the conscience to do that kind of thing? Um, plus, how can we understand what Islam really teaches? And what about all the peaceful Muslims? If Islam really is a violent religion, then how do we explain all the peaceful Muslims? How do we explain all these contradictions? Before we start talking, I, I do want to give a couple caveats. It's important that we filter this discussion through this lens. First and foremost, what Muhammad taught does not necessarily correlate with what Muslims practice. Just because we can conclude Islam teaches certain things, that does not mean Muslims practice that. There are different degrees of practice, there are different understandings of practice. Uh, some modern interpreters of the word Islam would say that Islam covers the breadth of all practice of those who self-identify as Muslim. That's not how I identify Islam. I identify Islam as that religious system with which Muhammad left Arabia. Um, so when I say the words Islam, I'm talking about what Muhammad left. Uh, some people, um, for example, one of my professors at Duke, would say that Islam has the ability to constantly shift according to context. And so it's different today than it was then. I don't think that's uh, a good way to look at it. Then something has lost uh, a lot of its basis, and that's a very postmodern approach. Uh, I think Islam is what Muhammad left us with. That said, it doesn't mean Muslims practice that, or all Muslims practice that, or that they all understand it the way Muhammad intended them to understand it. The sheer fact remains that the vast majority of Muslims in the United States, and probably around the world, just want to live peacefully. They just want to live their lives. Um, they want to have uh, a good life, they want to have opportunity for their children, they want to uh, make uh, a decent living and live comfortably, and many of them just want to worship in peace. So we ought to color the rest of this session with that basic information. Now moving forward, we have to remember the doctrine of abrogation. We had talked about this yesterday, we briefly mentioned it the day before, but this is the idea that in Islam, certain Quranic revelations replace earlier ones. Sunni Muslims all agree with this concept of abrogation. Um, again, they had three systems of abrogation. We talked about it yesterday. Uh, and this is the verse again. Whatever communication we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring one better than it or like it. Do you not know that Allah has power over all things? Now let's take a look at the Islamic timeline again. Muhammad starts his revelations in 610, and then he has a flight to Medina at 622. In between that time, Muslims were not engaged in any kind of battle. They were not fighting. As we said, somewhere between about 40 and 100 Muslims uh, were in existence at that time. Muslim Muhammad had only converted about that many. And there were no battles, there were no wars. These did not start until 622, uh, when the first raid happens uh, against Meccan caravans. Remember, it was at the first year towards the end of the Hijrah. After that, we start seeing battles. So we're going from a more peaceful to a more violent form of Islam. 
The, the battles become more and more offensive, uh, as we see, and the, the first battle, the Battle of Badr, even though it was the result of a raid, uh, it took place close to Medina. Um, it was the Meccans who came out uh, defending their caravan and met the Muslims there. When we see the conquest of Mecca happening in 630 AD, that is an entirely offensive campaign. Muhammad is going to Mecca and he's overtaking it. The Meccans haven't left the city, they aren't marching against him, nothing of the sort. It's entirely offensive. Uh, and there are many offensive campaigns occurring at this time. So we see a general trend from no violence to somewhat defensive to offensive. And by the end of Islam, uh, by the end of its revelation here, Muhammad has given chapter 9 of the Quran. We'll talk about that shortly. So the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia had divided up stages of Islamic dominance a few years ago. Uh, when he did this, it caused uh, quite a stir, but it's not something original to him. It's something we have seen even earlier. He said, so this is on his authority, that there are multiple stages in the Islamic empire. The first is when Muslims are outnumbered, they are to live peacefully. The Quran at this point is a parallel here. In Surah 109, we see a very peaceful message. Say, O ye unbelievers, I do not serve that which you serve, nor do you serve him whom I serve. Nor am I going to serve that which you serve, and nor are you going to serve him whom I serve. You shall have your religion, and I shall have my religion. In other words, let's live peacefully. Why can't we all just get along? Um, that's chapter 109 of the Quran. Rather peaceful, and it's one that Muslims regularly point to, to show how peaceful Islam is. If you want to have another verse um, that Muslims point to, to show the peaceful nature of Islam, it's chapter 2, verse 256. This verse says, La ikraha fiddin, there is no compulsion in religion. There's no compulsion in religion. Chapter 2, verse 256. Um, you also have uh, chapter 5, verse 32, which is often used by Muslims. Although we can talk about that later. Those two I don't think are actually as peaceful as Muslims uh, will often say they are. But those are the three that are commonly used to defend the peaceful nature of Islam. However, there's a second stage. When Muslims are strong enough to fight defensively, they're encouraged to, and the Quran gave explicit permission for this. Chapter 22, verses 39 through 40 of the Quran say, permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made, because they are oppressed, and most surely Allah is well able to assist them. Those who have been expelled from their homes without a just cause, except that they say, our Lord is Allah. So who's being talked about here? These are the people who have been forced to leave Mecca. Uh, they are now in Medina or where have you. They are allowed to fight defensively. They are being oppressed. And really there's nothing wrong with that if we think about it from a um, sheerly civil perspective. If, if you're being sent out of your home, then sure, why not defend? But then here comes stage three, when Muslims are in the majority. This chapter of the Quran, chapter 9 of the Quran, is the one that you constantly hear cited when people are talking about the violence in, in Islam. Chapter 9, verse 5, is, this, is the verse that says, slay the infidels wherever you find them, and lay siege to them, and take them captive. That's chapter 9, verse 5, that's talking about idolaters. This verse, chapter 9, verse 29, is not talking about idolaters, it's talking about Jews and Christians. And it says, fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of the truth. So fight those who don't believe in Allah, who don't believe in Islam, and who don't listen to the commands of Muhammad. From among the people of the book. And who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians. So fight those from the Jews and Christians who don't believe in Allah, who don't follow Muhammad, until they pay the jizya with willing submission, and feel themselves subdued. You'll recall we talked about dhimmis briefly, uh, people who had to pay in order to live under the protection of Muslims. The money that they paid was the jizya. And here, it's made very clear that they're supposed to pay that jizya with willing submission. Some translations say with humiliation. 
Um, and we have some commentary to that effect. When, when uh, the non-Muslims were paying some Muslims, they were made to bow down, and as they were handing the money over, they'd be smacked on the back of their necks to show them who was in charge. So this isn't really a civil agreement here. This is quite often a sign of superiority. Paying the jizya is a sign that you are inferior. Now, one of the most famous commentators in Islam, uh, Ibn Kathir, um, he has made specific reference to this verse in his commentary. Ibn Kathir is a very well-known commentator, by the way, among Sunnis. Uh, and a commentary is called a tafsir, T-A-F-S-I-R, tafsir. This is from his tafsir. The honorable ayah, 929, is called the verse of the sword. This honorable ayah was revealed with the order to fight the people of the book after the pagans were defeated. The people entered Allah's religion in large numbers and the Arabian Peninsula was secured under the Muslims' control. Allah commanded his messenger to fight the people of the scriptures, Jews and Christians, on the ninth year of Hijrah and he prepared his army to fight the Romans and called the people to jihad, announcing his intent and destination. What is happening here? According to Ibn Kathir, and we can see this uh, in another of his works, by the way, I mentioned it yesterday, Ghazwat e Rasul, the raids of the Prophet, uh, the battles of the Prophet. Definitely read that book to get a good context to this, but you can find this in lots of Sira literature. What's happening here is that Muhammad is now in control of Mecca. He's fought off the polytheists, they're gone, they've been expelled, or they've been killed, and now you have Muhammad saying, let us fight the Romans. The Romans were considered Christians. The Romans had not attacked the Muslims. They had not come close to attacking. They had not threatened nothing. Here Ibn Kathir is making it clear that Allah has now extended the call of Islam to these Jews and Christians and so they have to be fought if they don't accept Islam. And if they don't accept Islam and they're fought, they either fought till they are fight till they are killed or until they're subjugated. It's a very interesting battle that happens here. Uh, it's actually a battle that doesn't happen. It's called the Battle of Tabuk, uh, T-A-B-O-O-K. Muhammad rallies his troops at this time, uh, his people. They don't want to fight anymore. They're done fighting. And he's telling them that they have to fight. It's their obligation to listen to him and to come into battle. And many of them try to get out of it. And Muhammad receives revelation from Allah condemning those people who try to get out of this fight. And he says to them that the fighting is obligatory upon them. And the reason why they don't want to fight is because they have to march really far up north to fight people who have never fought them. Um, and, but Muhammad rallies the troops and does that. If you read 929 in context, again, this is uh, commentary on 929. If you read 929 in context, you will see exactly why this is happening. And Ghazwat uh, Rasul makes it pretty clear as well. The people were worried uh, that the pagans had been gone. There was no more commerce coming into Mecca. Remember, polytheism supported the commerce in Mecca. So the pagans were gone. They were worried about their money. Muhammad says, don't worry about the money. God will take care of you, essentially. That's what 928 is about. And then 929 comes along. Fight the Jews and Christians until they pay you money. It's not an accident. It's contextually related. Uh, and we can find this from the Seder literature again. By the way, the, uh, the reasoning that's given in the next verse, 930, is the Jews say Ezra is the son of God, and the Christians say Jesus is the son of God. Allah's curse is on them. So the, the reasoning that's given in order for you to be able to fight them until they pay the jizya is that these people believe God has sons. Interesting, fight them because of their beliefs. That's what chapter 9 of the Quran teaches. Ibn Kathir continues, he says, Therefore, all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so or refuses to pay the jizya, they should be fought till they are killed. Now, Ibn Kathir is often said by Western Muslims to have been somewhat extremist. Uh, he was violent, he's somewhat extremist, he's a fundamentalist, whatever uh, epithet they want to use. Problem is, he does the best job explaining what Muhammad said. His explanations are the most coherent. On the flip side, people like Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, they really highly tout the teachings of Ibn Kathir. Uh, they believe that Ibn Kathir had it on the money. 
And so when those Muslims do what they do, they're doing it on the basis of established commentary. They're not being that radical. They're following people who have been recognized commentators for a long time. Now, Ibn Kathir's social context was very interesting. We don't really have time to go into it, but uh, he was at a point where um, he thought that the reigning government wasn't being strong enough, they weren't being Muslim enough, and he was rallying people against the government in which he lived. Um, so there's a whole context that goes behind what Ibn Kathir says. All the same, it seems that he does the best job representing what Islam originally taught. Yes, sir? Um, what era did he write? I believe he was 13th century. I believe. I could be wrong about that. Again, we have to remember, oh, so the question was, David, where are you? <laughs> so, so the question was, um, <laughs> can you be, a, from a Muslim's point of view, can you be a faithful Muslim by not following this path? We have to remember that Islam is not monolithic. You've got Muslims who see all kinds of things. So there's a lot of Muslims who say, not only can you be faithful by not following this path, but in order to be faithful, you must not follow that path. Then you have Muslims on the entirely other side of the spectrum who say this is the only true Islam and you have to follow this path otherwise you're weak in your application of Islam. And, and that's the Taliban, um, that's Al-Qaeda, um, you know, portions of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, some Wahhabi Muslims. I'll take a quick break here and address that a little bit further. Um, as we have seen, there were four schools of Sunni thought we remember that these came through lines of authority, that early on certain imams came and established these schools of thought, and then people would kind of choose a school and it would follow down that line of authority. Those schools have begun to dissipate. People are kind of shopping around if they want to, or they're not listening to any of the schools, they're doing their own thing. Why is that, and why now? I have a theory, it's speculative, but I think it fits the data. People have, now access to what Muhammad said, what he taught, he, they have access to the commentary, they can easily look things up themselves. They don't have to have gone to a madrasa in order to have learned all this stuff. They didn't have to spend years and years and years in school. Now they can just go and look it up and they can see what Muhammad said. They can look up the hadith. They can see for themselves. And because they're doing that, they're no longer following schools of thought, they're going straight to the sources. Well, what happens when they do that? they revert back to an early form of Islam, not these built-up um, you know, edifices of Islam, early forms of Islam. Well, what are the early forms of Islam called? Well, there's a form of Islam called Salafi Islam. S-A-L-A-F-I, Salafi. The Salafi form of Islam, basically it takes a hadith. In the hadith, um, Muhammad says that the Salaf will be closest to me in truth, or the Salaf will be closest to, uh, to Islam. Who are the Salaf? The Salaf are the first three generations of Muslims. So when people try to emulate early Islam, they end up looking like Salafis. Well, who are the Salafis? These are the guys who started Wahhabi Islam. These are the guys who are all the fundamentalists. So it turns out that when people try to follow Muhammad, they end up looking more fundamentalist. They end up looking more violent. When you follow these edifices of Islam, when you follow this idea that Islam can be contextually um, modified to fit a context, to fit a society, then you have more peaceful versions of Islam. So you, so you would say there's a drift in Islam over time to this more violent... <laughs> away from the more violent. Um, away from the more violent. Uh, so it started off... Um, as you see, I mean, Ibn Kathir is going back to the earliest sources. He's talking about what Muhammad said. He's doing a good job of reigning on all the things Muhammad has said. The earliest form of Islam seems to be, when I say earliest form of Islam, I mean after Muhammad died. So, I mean, earlier on during Muhammad's life, it was more peaceful. But after Muhammad died, that form of Islam is what I'm considering the complete form of Islam. That is what I would call the earliest form of Islam for thereon. And people are drifting back to that.
it's happening sporadically all over the place. It's very interesting. I mean, it's happening in Saudi Arabia, it's happening in Egypt, it's happening in England, uh, it's happening in India and Pakistan, parts of Indonesia. Um, you know, these places, which were originally strongholds of various schools, you're seeing pockets of Salafi Islam just begin to grow, and it's growing fast. And I think it's because of access to the, the primary sources. Yes, sir. So what you're saying is, is as they go back to the original sources, the first three generations, they immediately get more fundamentalist, or appear to be more fundamentalist. But as they continue on that path, you're saying that they also realize they can be adjusted, and so then they become more peaceful. No. I'm saying, I'm saying you, people are kind of picking one or the other. Um, they're either sticking with more fundamentalist approach because they're trying to get back to Muhammad's sources or they're just sticking with what they've been taught and they end up looking a lot more peaceful. We're going to see some of these sources right now. So here's Sahih Bukhari, you remember, the most trustworthy source for Sunni Muslims. Muhammad says, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, La ilaha illallah. And whoever says, La ilaha illallah, Allah will save his property and life from me. Remember, La ilaha illallah is a shahada. It's the rallying call for Muslims. Uh, the entire statement is, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. So that was the first pillar of Islam. That was what makes you a Muslim when you recite that. Muhammad is saying, I have been ordered to fight people till they proclaim they're Muslim. And only then will Allah save their life and their property from me. This is found in Sahih Bukhari. In order to deny this, Muslims will try to deny this hadith, but um, you can't really because it's Bukhari. If you're going to deny this, you have to ask the question, what's, what are your standards for accepting anything? Because guess what? Something very similar is found in Sahih Muslim. Number 30. I have been commanded to fight against the people so long as they do not declare La ilaha illallah. So as you can see, it's permeating the most trustworthy of Muslim sources. Is it hard to understand why those Muslims who are trying to get back to what Muhammad taught could become violent? No, it's not hard to see that at all. <coughs> the Quran also has similar sentiments. Can you go back one slide, just one slide? Yeah, so that's Sayyid Bukhari 6924 and Sahih Muslim 30. And again, you're going to be getting copies of the slides in your email as long as you registered with the class. Chapter 3, verse 28 of the Quran. Let not the believers take disbelievers for their friends in preference to believers. Whoso does that has no connection with Allah unless it be, all right, this is the important part, unless it be that you but guard yourselves against them, taking as it were security. Allah bids you beware of himself unto Allah is the journeying. Whoa, so this is saying don't become friends with non-Muslims unless... You want to kind of protect yourself from them. There's a dichotomy that gets built up here. That you're allowed to have this friendship for ulterior motives, which is for your own safekeeping. It's not supposed to be a real friendship. This is what the Quran teaches. Again, do Muslims in the West actually do this? Not most of them. They will have friends with non-believers. They're, they're more than willing to have friends. With. I had a friend, once I became a, a, a believer, a Christian, um, he told me he couldn't be my friend anymore because I was a non-believer and he pointed to this verse. Um, so he said, I'll, I'll keep talking with you, but don't think I'm your friend. Um, he was pretty hardcore. <laughs> uh, he had been my friend since I was uh, a little kid. So some Muslims do take this quite seriously. Um, but he was one of those Muslims who, you know, grew his beard, shaved his mustache, wore his pants a bit high. He's trying to follow Muhammad to a T. Um, and they will end up doing things like this. Other Muslims who are just trying to live their life, just trying to get along, they won't live like this. But this is in the Quran. Ibn Kathir says about this verse, In this case, such believers are allowed to show friendship to disbelievers outwardly, but never inwardly. In other words, put on a face of friendship, but in your heart, don't. For instance, Al-Bukhari recorded that Abu Adarda said, We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. Al-Bukhari said that Al-Hasan said the taqiyya or the tukya is allowed until the day of resurrection. What is taqiyya? What is tukya? This is an Islamic concept of deception. You're allowed to deceive uh, according to 
this principle in various circumstances. Do all Muslims believe in it? No. I'm throwing qualifiers in here because sometimes people misinterpret what I'm saying. Just because it's there doesn't mean all Muslims believe it, but it is there. It's in the commentary and it comes from a Quranic source, chapter 3. Here's more the Quran says, Be not weary and faint-hearted, crying for peace when you should be uppermost. In other words, Muslims, why are you trying to be peaceful? You're supposed to conquer. Don't be weary and faint-hearted, asking for peace when you should be uppermost. Ibn Kathir says about that verse, If the disbelievers are considered more powerful and numerous than Muslims, then the Imam may decide to hold a treaty if he judges that entails a benefit for the Muslims. In other words, only a, tr a treaty can only be considered if the Muslims might lose a battle, according to Ibn Kathir. Now, do all follow Muslims follow Ibn Kathir? No. Right, he's just one commentator. Uh, but his commentary seems to be an appropriate commentary on what the Quran is saying. Sayyid Bukhari 2785, a man came to Allah's messenger and said, guide me to such a deed as equals jihad. Muhammad replied, I do not find such a deed. This is from the book of jihad in Sayyid Bukhari. If, if you're interested in these issues, go read that book. This is, uh, it was required reading for the class, so any of you who are in the class, you ought to have read it. Um, but this is Sayyid Bukhari on jihad. And so, most Muslims, again, most Sunni Muslims consider Bukhari to be good as gold. And so if you find it in Bukhari, on jihad, it's a strong source as far as Muslims are concerned. Yes, sir? When, when Islam comes in and takes over an area back then, they're basically instituting a government, commerce, and religion. Is there any way to look at it from your perspective and to say what a primary motivator was, or is it truly integrated all in? I'm not sure I caught your question. When you look at government, commerce, and religion being what they bring in, which one motivated them the most? Okay, so out of government, commerce, and religion, which one motivated Muslims the most? Yeah, for their conquests. For their conquests. I'm not sure we can distinguish. Okay. Um, there weren't, this wasn't a division. Um, the religion was seen as a state. Um, and commerce was seen as a necessary byproduct. I'm not sure we can distinguish that. If I were to have to, uh, I would say that it was probably, in the initial phases, from what the sources say, it looks like it was religion. Um, it was mandatory upon Muslims to expand their territory because Allah had commanded them to do so. So it wasn't a matter of, hey, we want that land. It was a matter of this was commanded by Allah. So, but again, I, I would, I'd rather not try to draw that distinction. I don't think it's an appropriate one for the context. So if you go to the section on jihad in Sayyid Bukhari, you'll read a lot of these. Here's another one. The Prophet said, a single endeavor of fighting in Allah's cause in the afternoon or in the forenoon is better than all the world and whatever is in it. So a single endeavor or a single engagement in jihad. Here's another one, 2795. The Prophet said, nobody who dies and finds good from Allah in the hereafter would wish to come back to this world. So after you go to heaven, you'll never want to come back. Even if you were given the whole world and whatever is in it, except the martyr, who on seeing the superiority of martyrdom would like to come back to this world and get killed again. So dying in jihad is so excellent that it's the only reason you'd want to come back to this world from heaven, so you can die in jihad again. Uh, if that wasn't clear enough, Muhammad says it more clearly here. By him in whose hand my soul is, I would love to be martyred in Allah's cause and then come back to life and then get martyred and then come back to life and then get martyred and then come back to life and then get martyred. The idea is martyrdom is even better almost than what you'll be feeling in heaven. Now, I, I want to take a moment to step aside. The, the word here that's being used is jihad. And the word jihad is used throughout the Quran. 
What does jihad mean? Jihad means a struggle. It means a strife. So when you are reading the Quran, sometimes the word jihad is used in part, uh, entirely apart from a violent context. Uh, it's, you know, you ought to struggle in order to do what Allah asks you to do. Forms of jihad that have been elaborated include giving money to the wayfarer or going out of your way to help rebuild a mosque. Um, you know, these are to take care of a mosque, to be a caretaker. These are considered forms of jihad. You're struggling, you're sacrificing of yourself for the sake of Allah. But Muhammad makes it abundantly clear in the Hadith, um, and we do have reference in the Quran to violent jihad. So, the term jihad, you'll often hear uh, in Western Islamic responses. It'll say, no, 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 jihad isn't meant to be violent. It's, it just means a struggle for the cause of Allah. That's true, but Muhammad's emphasized form of jihad was a violent one, especially if we take the Hadith into account. So what you've just seen is one category of violence, which is violence to unbelievers. Um, fighting in jihad, struggling in order to win people to Islam. But there's also violence towards other groups of people. In Sayyid Bukhari, you have a list of 10 hadith in a row that talk about violence to apostates. Sayyid Bukhari 69.21 says that female apostates should be killed. Sayyid Bukhari 69.22 says anyone who leaves Islam must be killed. 69.23, Muhammad himself orders apostates to be killed. 69.30 is another example where Muhammad, uh, Muslims who kill apostates have a reward on the day of resurrection. So I'm not sure if I mentioned it or not uh, on the first day when I was sharing my testimony, but right before I became a believer, Mike Lacona called me up and uh, he said, Nabil, do you understand what you're doing? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And he says, didn't you hear about the family in New Jersey recently who were all stabbed to death because they had accepted Christ and left Islam? Um, do you realize what you might be giving up? So that actually happens. It happens even in the West. People who leave Islam are often killed for it. Does it happen often in the West? No, not often. But does it happen? Yeah. And does it happen in other parts of the world? You better believe it. It happens a lot. Why? Because it's found in the Hadith. The attempt to divorce violence from Islam fails because it is so intricately woven at the innermost level that to pull violence out would be to fold out the foundations of Islam. Yeah. I'm sorry, this is my first day here. Yeah. You mentioned the Hadith. Mm -hmm. Is that, can you explain to me? Yeah, the Hadith, uh, so the question was, what are the Hadith? That was the same repeat question from yesterday. I mean, you asked that. Um, the Hadith are the traditional sayings of Muhammad. So a few hundred years after Muhammad, you have people compiling his sayings in writing. Before that, they were handed down orally, and they had proliferated, they had been uh, many that were fabricated. A few hundred years later, people sat down and tried to sift out the most authentic of the Hadith. That's what Muslims refer to today as true, trustworthy sayings of Muhammad. And that's not necessarily in the Quran. These are not in the Quran. And the Bukhari is a commentary on Hadith. is a collection of Hadith. It is the most trustworthy collection of Hadith. Ma'am. The definition of martyrdom in Islam seems to be different than what we think is Christian martyrdom. Can you kind of address that? The definition of martyrdom in Islam is basically if you are engaged in something for Allah's cause and you die, that's martyrdom. So if you are, if you are fighting because Allah commanded you to and then you die, you are martyred. If you're doing anything because Allah commanded you to, and in the process of that you die, you are martyred. Um, in the Christian faith, it's a little less focused on what you're doing at the time, and more so on the reason why you were killed. Uh, it's a minor distinction, I, yeah, but it's very perceptive of you, there's a slight difference there. So violence towards apostates, you will, you will see every school of Islamic thought, every major school, all four major schools of Sunni thought, all three major schools of Shia thought, say that apostates ought to be killed. 
in some circumstance or another. Now, a lot of Muslims will say, so I asked my friend, uh, <laughs> it's funny, um, I asked my friend who's like, I can't be your friend anymore. I was like, oh, okay, so if we're going to be that honest, um, do you think, do you think uh, I ought to be killed for leaving uh, Islam? And he said, let me get back to you on that. And, <laughs> and he comes back and he says, no, I don't think you should. Um, and I said, why is that? And he says, because you are not in an Islamic state. If you were in an Islamic state, what you'd be doing is committing high treason. So you ought to be killed for it, just like people are killed for treason during wartime in Western nations. But since you are not in an Islamic state, you're just changing your beliefs. You are not bound to accept this belief, so you can't, you can't be killed for it. Uh, just so you know, I asked another friend that question uh, at ISNA 2009, and he said, yeah, if it were up to me, I'd kill you. Um, so even here in the West, you've got people who you know, would, would say these kinds of things. Yeah, it's fun. Because, well, it's cool because you get, to, you get to appeal to that. You get to say, can you listen to what you're saying? Isn't there something inside you that rejects this? Isn't there something inside you that says you ought to love and that you ought to you know, have compassion? Um, in fact, that's what the Christian faith teaches, and you can share the gospel through that kind of a thing. And whether or not they, they will accept it, and they almost certainly won't at the time accept it, it will leave an impact. I have another friend who, um, it was the first person I debated, so if you go, um, oh, I should have brought my debates. Um, the first debate I ever had was on the deity of Jesus Christ. It was in 2006, August 5th. And uh, I debated a man by the name of Farhan Qureshi. No relation to me. Um, he was at the time an imam uh, in Northern Virginia. Um, and uh, he was also a friend from way back when. Over time, uh, my friend David and I debated him multiple times. We talked with him. He's a good guy. Um, you know, he's just got this heart of compassion. He does uh, work in psychology. Um, he tries to help people uh, therapeutically. He's, he's just got a big heart for people. Over time, he looked at this, the law of apostasy, and he said he could not believe that God would allow people to be killed for changing their faith. And now he has renounced his faith in Islam. Um, and so you can, uh, you can see him debate Muslims now. He's not a Christian. He's kind of uh, a deist right now. He doesn't know what he believes. Um, but this was enough for him to leave. Uh, this combined with other things. But it was, the violence in Islam was just too much for him. And you can watch the debate. So when we start out, he is hardcore imam when we start out. And you can, you can see that in our debates. Farhan Qureshi, it's online. Yes, sir. Farhan, his name is Farhan, F-A-R-H-A-N, and his last name is spelled the same way mine is, Qureshi. Um, be in prayer for him. Be in prayer for him. Are there any major sects of Islam that completely reject this type of teaching as a whole? Major sect. Um, well, the sect of Islam that I came from is called Ahmadiyyat, and uh, it was reformed in the 19th century. It was highly reformed. Um, and the reformer uh, said that jihad of the sword, that era has ended, and now it ought to be jihad of the pen. And so he said, no more fighting, period, at all. Uh, and so the sect of Islam that I came from is pacifist. Um, it does allow fighting to defend your nation, um, no matter what the nation is. So that's why my father could join the US Navy and uh, not have a problem when we went to war with Iraq. Um, uh, he didn't want to go fight in Iraq, but he still stayed in the Navy at the time. So you do have pacifist sects, but other Muslims take a look at that sect and say, that reformer was wacko, we don't consider you Muslim. Um, so not just for the pacifism, for his, for his claims too. He was kind of a Joseph Smith character. Um, but you do have certain sects that are pacifist. And then you have this kind of movement in the West, which tries to paint Islam as the religion of peace through and through and they will deny any of this. Uh, they will say that the abrogation happened the other way, that the peaceful stuff abrogated the violent stuff. But chronologically, that just simply does not work. I didn't get to tell you this, but Surah 9, so the, the surah that a lot of this information is coming from, was the last major surah to be revealed. Apart from this, there were little tiny revelations, but Surah 9 was the last major revelation in Islam. Just for the last part, nine, surah? Surah 9, yeah. No, 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 it's number 9, yeah. 
It's called uh, Surah Tawbah. Um, so think about this for a moment. This is essentially the marching orders for Muslims. This is what they were left with as far as the Quran is concerned. All these verses on violence. Uh, by the way, chapter 9, verse 111 is another one that uh, portrays the violence. It says that Allah has bought uh, Muslims and, pro and their property from, for this, that they might slay in Allah's way and be slain. So Allah made you Muslim so that you can kill and be killed, uh, essentially. Now, that's a rough translation, but that's chapter 9, verse 111. So we've looked at violence towards unbelievers. We looked at violence towards apostates. We also saw violence towards critics. Remember yesterday we talked about Abu Afaq, who was lamenting the death of two men at the hands of Muhammad. Uh, he basically criticized Islam just by saying, you should have followed Tuba. And he was killed. And then Asma bint Marwan criticized Islam as well by saying, how are you going around killing people? And then she got killed. Um, so we have seen violence towards critics already. Here's another one. A blind man had a slave mother who used to abuse the prophet and disparage him. What's a slave mother? That means it was one of his wives, or one of his handmaidens, whom he impregnated, and she became a mother of his children. Okay? Um, so, a blind man had a slave mother who used to abuse the prophet and disparage him. He forbade her, but she did not stop. He rebuked her, but she did not give up her habit. One night, she began to slander the prophet and abuse him. So he took a dagger, placed it on her belly, pressed it, and killed her. A child who came between her legs, so it was probably one of her kids who saw what was happening. A child who came between her legs was smeared with the blood that was there. When the morning came, the prophet was informed about it. Thereupon, the prophet said, be witness, no retaliation is payable for her blood. This is found in Sunan Abu Daud. Remember, the third most trustworthy source for hadith uh, for Sunni Muslims. Uh, the next one was very similar. A Jewess used to abuse the prophet and disparage him. A man strangled her. So this is a different case. A man strangled her till she died. The apostle of Allah declared that no recompense was payable for her blood. So it looks like if you criticize Muhammad, you can be killed without negative consequence. We also see violence towards women in Islam. Uh, it's not as bad. They're not being killed for minutiae, uh, but it's still pretty bad. This is the verse that is used to talk about the controversial treatment of women in Islam. Chapter 4, verse 34. By the way, chapter 4 is called the chapter on women, Surah An-Nisa. Men are the maintainers of women because Allah has made some of them to excel others and because they spend out of their property. In other words, men are superior to women and they take care of them with their money. So they're made to be the maintainers of women. The good women are therefore obedient, guarding the unseen as Allah has guarded. Uh, in other words, women guard their chastity as Allah has kind of guarded the unseen realm. So do women, the good women. And as to those on whose part you fear desertion, uh, the word here, we'll get to that in a moment. And those, and those on whom you fear desertion, admonish them and leave them alone in their sleeping places and beat them. And if they obey you, do not seek a way against them. Surely Allah is high and great. So this is in the Quran. If you fear nushuz, if you fear disobedience, if you fear desertion um, from these women, then you are commanded to do these things. Admonish them, leave them alone in their sleeping places, or leave them alone, banish them to their beds, is how Yusuf Ali puts it, and beat them. There are a lot of things to talk about here. Uh, when I took a course on Sharia at Duke, uh, we spent a whole day on this one verse. Um, the issue here for desertion, disobedience, what is it? What does that en encapsulate? The same word is used later of husbands being disobedient to their wives. So what exactly does that mean, disobedience? Um, it's hard to say, but in this verse, the context looks like if you think that they're not being chased. The context make it, makes it look like if you think they're not being chased. Now, it doesn't require that you have evidence. It just says if you fear 
that they are not being chased. And then you can beat them. If you delve into Muslim uh, commentary, Muslim understanding of what's allowed as far as beating your wives, you will find all kinds of things on YouTube. There are video guides on how to beat your wife on YouTube. Um, and they're attempting to be nice. They're saying, you know, don't hit her face, don't use a stick wider than this, you know. Um, some people will take it even further, they'll say just, it should be a symbolic tapping, um, which is not borne out by the literature at all. And we can see that here. In Sahih Muslim number 2127, uh, this is the hadith that, I brought this up with a Muslim scholar um, at Isna. I, I, he said in the, in the middle of a presentation, I was a believer at this time, uh, I was just at Isna to see what they were teaching, and he said, Muhammad never beat his wives. Even if the Quran says it's allowed, Muhammad never did it, and we're supposed to follow Muhammad's example. And so he kind of got around, you know, the injunction that you can beat your wife by saying, Muhammad didn't do it, and he's our example. So even though you're allowed to, you shouldn't. I went up to him uh, afterwards, and I said, Sayyid Muslim 2127 shows Muhammad hitting Aisha in the chest, causing her pain. Uh, is that not Muhammad hitting his wife? And his response was, I'm not familiar with this hadith. Uh, and I don't, I don't think he was lying. Uh, I just think that he hadn't seen it. His teachers hadn't shown it to him. This hadith is very interesting. Aisha is worried about what Muhammad is doing in the middle of the night. She, I think what she thinks, although it's not explicitly said, I think what she thinks is he is leaving her to go spend time with another one of his wives. So he th she thinks he's cheating on her with another one of his wives. Um, so he goes out and she follows him. So he, she, he thinks she's asleep. He goes out of the, of the room. She follows him. Muhammad starts walking faster and faster. No, Muhammad goes to a certain place. Aisha sees him and realizes he's not cheating on her. He's just standing out there. And then so she sees him turn around and start walking back and he does, she doesn't want him to see her so she starts walking back. And Muhammad starts going faster and she starts going faster. And then Muhammad's running and she's running. So basically Muhammad's chasing her. She gets back in the, in the room, pretends to be in bed and asleep. And Muhammad comes in and he says, oh Aisha, why are you breathing so heavy? Um, and uh, she gives him an excuse and he punches her in the chest. Um, I have brought this up with Muslims who did know about it. And he said, they say, Nabil, this is a holy punch. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, can you uh, explain that to me? And they say, basically what Muhammad is doing is he's casting out demons from Aisha. Um, okay. <laughs> well done. <laughs> well played. Um, but that's, that is the best explanation I've seen, that this was a holy punch. Um, but it's still, most Muslims still admit that it happened. Um, and so it's not feasible to say Muhammad never hit his wives. We have seen that in the Hadith. Yeah. Uh, was Aisha the six-year-old girl that he married? Or was that just yeah, that was the six-year-old. So she didn't come into his house until, until she was nine. So this is probably when she's uh, 10, 11, 12. We don't know exactly when this is, but she's a young girl at this time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what's worse is uh, Bukhari 6845, Abu Bakr struck Aisha violently. So Abu Bakr is Aisha's father. Um, and here it says he struck her violently. Uh, there are multiple hadith to that effect. Um, Aisha and one of the other wives, I think it was, it might have been Hafsa. They were, it was Hafsa. They wanted more money from Muhammad. They were complaining that Muhammad wasn't giving them enough money. Um, and their fathers came in and punched them, uh, and uh, in the, I think it was in the face. Um, and Abu Bakr was Aisha's father, and I believe Omar is Hafsa's father. So wives of Muhammad being punched right there in front of Muhammad, and Muhammad doesn't stop them. Now there is a hadith, by the way, uh, which says, the best among you is the one who treats his wife well. So that, that hadith is there, and we should use that to balance these out. Um, but at the same time, these are there. So, we should get a good view. Abu Dawood, 2142, a man will not be asked as to why he beat his wife. In other words, if you beat your wife, no one can question you. It's kind of up to you. And we see this played out in Ibn Majah. Ibn Majah is considered another one of the Sihasitta, 
the, the top six books that Sunni Muslims refer to. One night, Omar arranged a feast. When it was midnight, he got up and went towards his wife to beat her. Okay, a little non sequitur there. Uh, I, I ate a ton of food. I'm going to beat you. Okay. Um, <laughs> I separated them both. Uh, when he went to bed, he said to me, Preserve for me a thing that I had heard from Allah's Messenger. In other words, listen to me. This is what Muhammad said. A man will not be taken to task for beating his wife. In other words, he said, Muhammad told me, you can't stop me from beating my wife. Who do you think you are? So, because of these kinds of sentiments, because of these kinds of actions, Aisha is recorded as having said, I have not seen any women suffering as much as the believing women. In other words, Aisha says, I haven't seen women suffer as much as Muslim women. And then she's pointing to a woman and she says, look, her skin is greener than her clothes. In other words, she's been bruised so bad, her skin is greener than her clothes are. And she's talking about another woman. This was a woman who, by the way, had come to Muhammad and had asked for respite. She had said, my husband beats me. And Muhammad's initial response was, you're not allowed to beat your wives. And then Allah gives this revelation, 434, you're allowed to beat your wives. And then he says to her, I'm sorry, I wanted to weigh in favor of you, but Allah has overruled me. I will hold my snide remarks. So violence towards women, quite prevalent in the early sources. We found it in Bukhari, we found it in Muslim, we found it in Daud, and of course we see it in the Quran, 434. We also see violence towards sinners. This is kind of the way you handle things. Chapter 5, verse 38, as for the man who steals and the woman who steals, cut off their hands as a punishment for what they have earned. An exemplary punishment from Allah, and Allah is mighty and wise. So, you can go on websites today, not YouTube, YouTube doesn't show violent images, but you can go on various other websites today and watch women and men getting their hands cut off because they stole things. Um, you can compare that to Ephesians where you know, Paul says, those of you, of you who have been stealing, steal no more, but rather work so that what you produce can be given to others. Start comparison between these two faiths. The penalty for homosexuality. Sunan Abu Dawood, 44-47. Ibn Abbas reported the apostle of Allah as saying, if you find anyone doing as Lot's people did, kill the one who does it and the one to whom it is done. 44-48 says, Ibn Abbas said, if a man who is not married is seized committing sodomy, he will be stoned to death. So, and this isn't too different from what we see in the Old Testament. The difference here, though, from a Christian perspective, is that this is for all time. Whereas what was done uh, as law for the Israelites was for those people to establish the superiority of Yahweh in the eyes of the world around them, and then that was to be fulfilled in Christ when grace would reign. So uh, that's an important thing to remember as well. A lot of these things are somewhat similar to what you find in the Old Testament, but there is that sharp distinction between the Old Testament and the Quran as far as Christians are concerned, because the Old Testament isn't what we're left with. We're left with the Gospels, we're left with Christ's grace. Here's a penalty for fornication, Quran 24. As for the fornicatress and the fornicator, flog each of them, giving a hundred stripes, and let no pity for them detain you in the matter of obedience to Allah. If you believe in Allah on the last day, and let a party of believers witness this chastisement. Not only are you commanded to beat them, but if you are found pitying them, overlook your pity and continue beating them. You can see these videos, again, online, of people being beaten, uh, flogged horrifically, and they're crying out for mercy, and, and you have to ask yourself, why is this person who's beating them able to continue doing so? Um, don't they have any shred of compassion in them? It's because, you know, ayat like this make sure that that compassion is not given room. Penalty for adultery, chapter six, uh, Sahih Bukhari, 6829. 
Omer said, Lo, I confirm that the penalty of rajam, or stoning, be inflicted on him who commits illegal sexual intercourse if he is already married and the crime is proved by witnesses or pregnancy or confessions. Stoning to death. There are interesting implications for this. If a married woman in a Muslim nation says she was raped, the Quran demands that there be four witnesses to a rape. So four witnesses have to see it in order for it to be a legitimate accusation. If she is unable to provide four witnesses after having said she was raped, they will say, you cannot prove the rape, but you have confessed adultery. And so you will be executed. And that happens even today. The witnesses should be men, but I think they'll take them if they're women too. Uh, the, the ratio of women witnesses to male witnesses is two to one. But I haven't seen that strictly applied in the case of rape. The problem is if a woman is raped then, she often does not report it. Um, and then if she gets pregnant because of it, then they will, uh, either she has to play it off as her husband's child or she'll be killed after the child's born. Um, this is really difficult for women. Um, that's why as believers, we ought to be fighting for the rights of the oppressed around the world, regardless of their faith, because there's not many people fighting for them. Even if they're Muslim women, uh, we ought to be taking, out, taking a stand and fighting for their rights in these nations um, and making sure that these kinds of atrocities stop. And that would be the love of Christ played out in a real way. So here's our summary so far. It seems that the solution for many problems in Islam is violence. The solution for an unbeliever, violence. The solution for apostasy, violence. The solution for criticism, violence. The solution for displeasing women, violence. And the solution for sinners is violence. Violence basically permeates the reaction of people who are deviating from the path. And this is what, in what I would say, true Islam, the Islam that Muhammad left with his people, as best as we can tell from the Quran and from the sources. So, is Islam a religion of peace? When you get a bumper sticker question like that, you have to ask for clarification. What do you mean by that? If the person responds, can Islam be practiced peacefully? Well, of course, Islam can be practiced peacefully by ignoring the violent components. Sure, you can. But if you're asking, does the religion that Muhammad left the world endorse violence? The answer is definitely yes, on many levels. Therefore, Islam is not a religion of peace, if that's what you define as Islam, and that is what I define as Islam. Now, what is our response supposed to be to all this? Um, I find, by the way, my ministry, Creed 2-6 Ministries, is not focused on Islam. It's focused on the gospel. Um, it's focused on explaining the death, deity, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what that means for us as believers, and what it means for Muslims as well, as we share the faith with them. What does all this information mean for us, then? How are we supposed to respond as far as we are concerned, as believers in Christ, we have no fear. We have no reason to fear suffering, to fear death, to fear oppression. In fact, if we do not suffer, it's quite possible that we're not expressing our faith the way it ought to be expressed. How do we know this? 2 Timothy 3.12 Everyone who lives a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer or will be persecuted. It's all throughout the gospel. 1 Peter 5 says that you should count it as an honor if you're suffering for Christ. You know, Matthew 5 tells us that we're supposed to be able to hand over uh, things to our enemies, people who are persecuting us. We're supposed to be able to pray for them. We're supposed to be able to give them something to drink. We're supposed to love them. What good is it if we just love our brothers and sisters? Even pagans do that. We're supposed to love our enemies. 
This is the Christian message. Why? How does that work? Because Christ has already overcome this world. We are not fighting for this world. We're fighting for the next world. And so in this life, if Muslims take over, let's just say, I don't believe in these, um, these vast conspiracy theories, but let's say it were true and they took over and we were all oppressed, so what? The Christian faith grew the most under oppression and it continues to do that. The truest Christians are the ones who have to face persecution every day and who have to fight for their faith. So when we go out into this world and when we look at potential violence, we're not supposed to try to preserve our own safety, our own comfort, our own standards. That's not supposed to be our reaction. If that is, I challenge you to take your heart before the Lord. Our reaction is supposed to be, let us help these people out of this mindset. Let us help them away from this violence. Let us help the women who are caught in this. Let us help all the people who are oppressed by this, even if that involves our suffering to the point of death. That is supposed to be our response. So fear is not an appropriate Christian response to this, and that's my point. A lot of people say, Nabil, what you're doing is fear-mongering. Not at all. We are supposed to know what Islam is. We're supposed to know what we're up against. We're supposed to be informed. But fear is outside the realm of a Christian response. Responsibility to share the gospel. That is what's going to change this. It's the only thing that's going to change this, is spreading the gospel through the Islamic world. That's supposed to be our response. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life.